Okay, so we are here and a little bit delayed, but we are up and running. Hopefully everybody is safe at home and uh, not having to go out in the weather. So we are going to continue our series tonight, and before we do that, we're going to pray. Dear Lord, uh, we're thankful that we are able to um, do these lessons and send them out to everybody that we um, that we know and that we are dear to and those who we don't know and uh, we just pray that they'll be able to get something out of this that you'll speak to them through this and that we all might uh, grow closer to you just by the study of your word in jesus name amen okay so we are doing abraham and uh we've done a couple weeks of it now and Abraham is really the first person um, to start the whole Hebrew line. So nobody was ever called a Hebrew before Abraham. He's the first person to be called a Hebrew. And right now his name is just Abram. And eventually God will change his name, and we'll talk more about that when we get there. But Abram is set in the time of right after Noah, at least in the order of Genesis, he is right after Noah. And he um, is somebody who lives in a time where not a lot of people know God. They do not personally know him, and many people do not even believe in God anymore. And they, have, they follow all these other false gods and idols, and Abram is called by God to leave that lifestyle, to leave the comfort of his home and his family and the culture that he lives in, and he is following God um, and he is also looking for what? Right. He is following God and God's promises. And these promises thus far are not very specific. They are that he, uh, that God will make Abraham a great nation, all of his descendants, that he will be a blessing to all other nations, and that whoever blesses Abraham will be blessed by God, and whoever curses Abraham will be cursed by God. Um, and... Don't think, this is just a sidebar, because I think about this, or have thought about this quite a bit, and do whenever the word curse comes up in the Bible, because it is not like a Harry Potter curse. Like, it's not that kind of a thing. It's not like a magic curse, and it's not even a, although it can be sometimes, but it's not necessarily like a, like a this is your fate kind of thing. You when it means that you are cursed by God or that you are cursed because of something, it usually has to do with your decision of not wanting to follow God. 
that you are not aligning yourself with God. And in the contrast, when you are blessed by God, it's because you align yourself with God. So it's we've talked before about that there is, it's like there's a river that this is God's way. Oh. And you can be going, you can be here in the river, you could be over here in the river, all following God's way. But then there's other things where it comes along, for example, uh, I'll use it anyways because it's, it's clear. Let's take, because there's different churches, right? Hopefully, East Shelby Church is in the, here in God's way, right? There are maybe other churches that go like this. And then they're in the, and then they come back out. Okay, an example would be um, in history is the Catholic Church. You know, they started off. They were started by the original Christians in Rome, and they did some pretty bad things along the way. He's talking about Spanish Inquisition, um, and then eventually Martin Luther had to come along and correct that. And you, his goal was to bring them back into God's way, but in the, in the end, he just started a whole new branch, was start, a movement, not that he started, but people following his teaching started, to, and they were back in God's way. So I say that because when you are out of God's way, just like the Catholic Church, it is, you are... In a different sense of the word, you are cursed because God is not going to bless you when you are not working in his way. Okay? So, just decide. So, that helps you to understand in Abraham's story and late throughout the Bible when people are blessed because they help God's people and when they are cursed because they do not. All right? It all centers around that. Okay. Sorry. That was a short little aside there just to better understand the story. Um, so... Abraham now with these promises he sets out into Canaan. And we're going to draw our map. We're going to, not as detailed today. We're going to zoom in a little bit more. But if Haran is way over here, remember that's where he first goes um, until his father dies. And then we have down here, we have Egypt, the Delta. Red Sea, um, we have the Dead Sea, well, I'm going to draw that better because stuff's going to happen around the Dead Sea this week. We have the Jordan River and then the Sea of Galilee, which is not called the Sea of Gal Galilee right now. In the map in your Bible, it probably has a different name, I can't think of it right now. But, and then we have Jerusalem, and we talked about Sodom down here, it's a city down there, um, and then we have Damascus is up here, that'll come into play today. Bethel is up here. Okay. 
he leaves after his father dies. He, God speaks to him again, and he leaves Haran, and he comes over to the land of Canaan, which is this whole area down around here. And he travels through it. He comes to Bethel. He offers a sacrifice to God, um, <clears throat> thanking him. And then uh, something happens that changes his plans. A natural disaster, a famine comes along. So there's no food in Canaan. So he makes his way down to Egypt. Um, and while he's in Egypt, he meets Pharaoh while he is there. And before he meets him, he's afraid that because his wife, Sarai, her name will be Sarah, but it's Sarai right now. is apparently so beautiful at her young age of 70, I think, that he's afraid that Pharaoh or somebody else will kill her or kill him and take her as their own wife. So he said he lies and he says she's my sister, which I don't really understand why that would save him other than the fact that if he's just her, his sister, then they might say, oh, well, no big deal. We don't have to get rid of you because you're so beautiful. So by then doing that, he is essentially saying, I am not, don't have enough faith in God to protect us while we're here. And when he, um, while they're there then, Pharaoh does take Sarah because he says, oh, no, big deal. She's your sister. And they keep um, take her and she becomes one of his concubines. And God then says, well, this is not within my plan. She's supposed to stay with Abraham. So he sends plagues on Egypt. And eventually Pharaoh kind of figures out why, what changed, what's different. And he says, hey, why didn't you tell me she was your wife when he asks her? And Abraham probably sheepishly said, oh, I thought you would kill me. And, and he's like, no, take her and get out of here. Gives him gifts and the plague stop when he leaves. So Abraham then leaves Egypt, come back up to Bethel. And he offers a sacrifice there again. Why is that ark important? We did. We talked about this briefly in our review last week, or the beginning of our lesson last week, because this is in the beginning of chapter 14 of Genesis, or sorry, 13. It's, it's important because when we make an error, when we sin, that we need to go back to God. We need to go back, come before him, ask for atonement, for forgiveness, and to set ourselves right again and be realigned with God. So that is what Abraham is doing. Um, and then he is going, he then, now that he's realigned, continues to follow God's calling, and he continues to move around throughout Canaan in search of God's will. So he is, I don't know if we touched on this, 
but Abraham is what is called nomadic. So nomadic means that you live in a tent and you move wherever is um, good for the livestock that you have or where to where new good hunting ground is or you live off the land and you're constantly moving because of that. And this is important, um, one, because he has to trust God in his leading of where to go for his survival. And it's also an excellent picture of how we are not to make this world that we live in our home, not to be too tied to it, because God has a promise of a better home, something better for us in the future. And that's what Moses is doing, is that he knows, and we talked about that, that in Hebrews 11, it says that Abraham searched not for a city on this earth, but a city of God. So he knew that there was something more eternal and spiritual promised to him. Okay, and we said also that last week that he was like the character in the self-titled movie Moana last week. Why is Abraham like Moana? He was searching for a land that he didn't know. Okay, yes, they are both searching. They also both have a what? It's the beginning of of, uh, Abraham's story. God did what? A A calling, yes. Abraham has a calling. Calling to follow God. Okay, that's his calling. He knows it. It's something in him. He's been unsatisfied with his life. Um, I'm sure in this, he feels more real and more alive than he ever has. And similar to Moana, that she has a feel where she has a calling. It's all about this, that she was made for this purpose and that um, she has to fulfill it no matter what. Okay. Um, And from this... Then from following around in this nomadic lifestyle of needing a lot of land for all their cattle, um, a conflict arises within the household. And if we remember that there's not just Abraham and Sarah, but there is also their nephew, Lot. And um, Lot has his own servants, his own family. Um, I don't know if he has them yet, but he has a wife at least later, and two daughters and some sons. So he has his own family, his own servants, his own livestock, and there starts to be arguments between Abraham and Lot's servants about who, what land belongs to who when they're grazing. And it's now Abraham's, in his wisdom, he says we need to decide to split off, and we see his humbleness as well in that he allows Lot to choose his realm where he's going to live and um, get his sustenance from first. And Lot, of course, they are down here. As we talked about last week, they are down here. 
by Sodom in the Dead Sea. And this area was said to be like the Garden of Eden. And that's how green um, this valley is down here. And they're looking over it, and Lot chooses the best one for himself. And we see here a similar example that we often see in Pilgrim's Progress. If you remember doing that uh, book, we did a, probably a couple years ago now. But in Pilgrim's Progress, um, we see where, and Lot does this, where he chooses what is easy and he chooses what is going to please his fleshly desires, please his his pocket, please his um, ease of life, please um, his way of life. And he also, if you remember from last week, he sent, sets his tent down here in this valley with the door facing towards Sodom. So he can look out his door at Sodom. And we haven't, the Bible hasn't told us about this yet, but if you know anything about the famous city of Sodom, you know that it is famous for all types of debauchery and sin and sexual immorality. And I mean, there it goes down as the most evil city in all of history. So he is putting himself on the edge of this. And Abram does the opposite where he does not anchor his life to anything of the world and he continually moves his camp. So his camp, and he chooses this area around the Dead Sea for now, and he's constantly moving wherever God calls him, wherever he feels led to, where Lot is, says, I don't have to move. I'm in this place, this green valley. It's great. I know there's that terrible stuff over there, but that won't bother me. And the same thing I mentioned Pilgrim's Progress is we see that Pil or Christian meets other pilgrims along the journey where uh, specifically I think of formalists and hypocrisy who jumped over the king's um, walled, um, the walled pathway they jumped in, they didn't go the right way in, and they're coming along and Christian is like, well, you just jumped in. You, you know, don't you have to enter in? Like, don't you have to enter in essentially through salvation or through God? And they're like, oh, no, 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 this will work fine for us. We're, we're on the same path, aren't we? And it's soon they find out, Christian finds out what they're really made of when they get to point where there is, hope everyone can see this, where there is a, a mountain and the path is coming here and one pathway goes up the mountain. But then there's seemingly paths to go around the mountain, the easy way, the way that won't inconvenience them. And Christian chooses, says, well, I'm staying on the king's. This is clearly marked the king's way, even though it is called, this is even called difficulty. And formless and hypocrisy will say, well, we're going to go around. And they each chose a way, and you never see them again. And this is the same thing 
uh, this is like a foreshadowing of Lot, that he chooses the easy way. And it, we don't know a lot about what Lot thought, how he thought. The Bible doesn't tell us those things, but it does tell us what his actions were. And his actions tell us a lot about him. And I'm sure you've heard a thousand times, actions speak louder than words. And they do. So now we come to chapter 14. And some time has passed since Lot and Abram split. And we know, um, just to give you a ballpark, we know that Abraham was 75 when he left Haran. He was 75 years old. And that later on, in a couple chapters, it will tell us that he is 85 years old. So we know that there are 10 years that passed between he left Haran and a little farther on in the story. So it may have been, because who knows, some, all of this stuff could have happened within three years in those chapters. We don't know how much of the rest of the time was just boring and walking around. Because doesn't it seem like life, maybe not for you guys yet, but life can be like that where there's long times where nothing happens. And especially when you get older, there's not as much to talk about. But there are times in your life where everything happens in a couple years. So we don't know, but it could have been a year now since Lot and Abraham split. It could have been five years. It could have been eight years. We're not sure how long has passed, but not a terribly long time in considering Abraham will live to be, oh, I hope I get this right, 120, I'm pretty sure is how old he lives to be. Definitely he lives over 100. And during... This time of in history where Abraham's story takes place and specifically these 10 years in Canaan, um, the land that we outline here, this is all filled with um, little kingdoms throughout it. There's little cities like Jerusalem would have been one city kingdom. And then Damascus is another city kingdom. Sodom is a city kingdom down there. Gomorrah is another city kingdom. And they're spread out all over the place. And each one has its own king that rules it. And they are constantly rising and falling up and down. One uh, falls to another one. And then they have to pay tribute to another king that they're under the thumb of the of whoever is the strongest king at the time. And four of these kings in Canaan get together. And their names are <clears throat> Amraphel, Shinar, or sorry, that's the, that's the place he's king of. So Amraphel, Ariok, Tidal, and Chidor, Leomer. Okay, they're hard names. Those, those Sumerian, like Canaan names are very hard. They're not the way we talk today or anybody talks really. So they're tough names, but these four get together and they say, we're going to make an alliance. And then they go around throughout Canaan and they conquer a bunch of these other little 
individual kingdoms and each one they come to them, they smash them up and they say, now you're going to pay us every year or we're going to come back and we'll squash you. And they're like, okay, well, I guess we'll pay you. That's better than getting squashed again. So for 12 years, everyone in Canaan is paying these four kings a tribute, uh, whether that's in the form of probably not money because there wasn't, I would imagine there's not a universal currency at the time. Probably each king has their own coins, but they're paying them in gold. They're paying them in silver. And, uh, you know, if you're in Lebanon, you might pay them in cedar trees. If you're down here in Sodom, you might pay them in copper because there's copper mines down there. Or, and I'm sure all of them had to give slaves, give people up for whatever tasks these four kings were after. Well, after some time, these five of these little kingdoms say in the 13th year of this, they say, we're not paying anymore. We're done paying. Do We're calling your bluff on this. And Kidor Leomir, Kidor Leomir and his allies come down to fulfill their promise. So chapter 14 now, we're going to read verses 8 through 12. So there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the valley of Sidon. And... Kidor Lamor and the king of Elam with title, the king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings with five. The vale, and the valley of Sidon was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain." And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, that is um, the four strong kings, and all their victuals, and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Okay, we'll stop it there at 12 for now. And so, these four kings come down, and they whoop the five rebellious kings. They come down... They meet in um, a valley down in this area, kind of in this section here, that is full of what the Bible calls slime pits. If you look in this area today, you, they still um, dig out of there what is called bitumen. And if you were to look up bitumen today, uh, probably the thing that would come up would be like a bitumen roof. And that is, and which is basically how they do flat tar roofs over like big buildings, like on a college campus or like at a mall or those style buildings. So these pits are filled with, with essentially tar, which you think, okay, that's kind of weird, but tar is extremely valuable. All of our roads around here are made out of a, a tar and rock top coat. That's what it is. We have concrete bases, but a tar and rock top. And at that time, um, if you recall, 
the Tower of Babel in the Bible, which happens right before Abraham chronologically here, probably a couple hundred years before Abraham. That whole tower was built with, with bricks and it says slime. So it was most likely either tar or some sort of other pitch substance. So you used it to bind things together. to make. So this is where the battle takes place and they flee to the tar pits. So this already sounds like kind of like an epic battle. Like it's happening among these slime pits where people are probably getting stuck in them and it's they're being used to their advantage to, to uh, corner people and all sorts of stuff, I'm sure. And then the, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and one other kingdom there that's not famous, Edoma, um, they flee into the mountains, which this is where the mountain range is, right through here. So they flee up into the mountains and leave behind all their stuff. So the victors then gather up the spoils and the captives, um, they take the slaves and they head back up here. And this is where the lead king's kingdom is up here by Damascus. So they're traveling up that way. They've got, they loot the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, take the people and all the uh, wealth that's there. And what do we find there in verse 12? They took Lot, but more importantly, there's some more information about why they took Lot. Wasn't he like just hanging out outside of Sodom a couple verses ago? Now, we don't know how much time had passed, but the fact is, he seemed to think he was going to be okay. Well, when you get out of God's way, remember, think about the river. Bad things are going to come along. He's not, um, he's not following the way of life that Abraham has anymore. And he is out of God's way, and that's where the curse comes in. It wasn't that God says, you're going to be cursed, and everything happens to you is going to be terrible. It's like, no, Lot chose to be in this situation and put himself where really where he was tempted and he starts to live a different life and he's now living in Sodom. So because of that, he's also taken captive. Um, and let's read on and see what happens next. Verse 13 now. And there came one that had escaped and told Abraham the Hebrew. That's the, I think the first mention of Hebrew there. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abraham. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants and bore, born in his own house 318 and pursued them unto Dan. Okay, so servant of Lot's escapes capture uh, in the city of Sodom and finds Abraham's camp which is over in this area over here. So he runs, finds Abraham, which probably took a little bit, I would imagine, and tells him what happened. And Abraham takes, 
takes no, he, uh, he doesn't take any time in making a decision of what's going to be done. And he says, every man who lives under his care is to go and get them, get whatever they have for a weapon. And then he also has um, some other people, some neighbors that live there, um, some Amorites and um, his, one of his brothers that are, they're, they're essentially, they agree to live peaceably together and he, he gets their help with him as well. So Abraham has his own 318 people with him as well as whoever else he was able to drum up. And they start to pursue after these four kings, armies, up north, past Galilee. And they're chasing after them. Doesn't say how many days it takes to catch up with them. It might have just been one day. We're not sure. This is a small area of the world. It's not as big as you think. It, um, I want to say that they said it only took a couple days to walk from up in, by Galilee down to Jerusalem. So this Abraham could have easily gotten there in 24 hours if they were if they were really hauling. So we see that Abraham um, and his his God are not to be messed with, and it says here that um, well let's go ahead let's read it instead of just me telling you about it. Uh, verse 15 now. And he divided himself against them. He and his servants by night and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on, on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back again his brother Lot and all his goods and the women also and the people. So he... Um, he, once he catches up with the army, they wait until nightfall, or they arrived at nightfall. We're not sure which. And Abraham is a natural at this. First of all, he attacks at night. If you, if you are any type of, I don't know, interested in military history or anything, you know that the best time to attack is at night, but at night just before dawn breaks like that hour right before it starts to get light out. Because if you have people who are posted and watching all through the night, a night watch, that's when they are most likely to make a mistake and fall asleep. Or somebody in the chain of waking other people up to watch fell asleep and people haven't been watching for a while. So in the U.S. Army, there is still a thing that is called... Um, Oh, now I'm not going to be able to remember it. Um, I think it's called muster. There might be a newer name for it, but it is essentially where everybody wakes up the hour before it turns light. Not before you can see the sun, but before it starts like that dull gray where you can actually see enough. Everyone wakes up the hour before that. You get all dressed. Oh, it's called stand to. That's what it's called. And you get your, your all in your battle gear, your rifle loaded, and you sit all facing out on the outside of your base or your fortress or your little camp, and you're waiting for a potential attack. You don't even know if anyone's there, but that, because you know that's the time to attack. 
So Abraham knows this. It's been true throughout all of history. He's prepared. And not only does he do that, he splits his guys into two groups. And this is also like the army has battle drills that they developed primarily during World War II. Because they went into World War II and it was totally different from all other wars. And they just kind of figured these things out. And after the war, they all got together and they got together the guys who were really successful. And they said, yep, these are the things that worked. And the very no- and there's only like five battle drills that everything's based off in the army. Like, obviously, you can do so many different things, but there's only five for small forces like this. And number one, battle drill one alpha, is split your guys into two forces. So you have them lined up here, here, the enemies here. And one, of, one side sh- shoots at the enemy here. The other one comes around, swings around over here, and then they shoot at the enemy. So you're trapped two ways, and then this one stops as this one runs across over them, and then the other one runs across over them. So you trap them. And this is, this is exactly what Abraham does. Of course, I'm adding a little bit, but the only reason you ever split your forces in any military battle is to surround somebody cut off their ways, okay? That's what he does. And he is absolutely victorious. In fact, it uses in verse 17 that Abraham returned from the slaughter of Chidor Lamor, Laomir. Okay, he, he absolutely destroys them. And they come back, they gather up all the spoils that were taken from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities, gathered up all the people, not just Lot, and they take them back home. Now, all this time, do you know where the king of Sodom has been? In the mountains, hiding, okay? And that, that's all I'm gonna say. I think it's self-explanatory. So verse 21, um, Now, we're going to jump to verse 21 through 24. This is what the king of Sodom says when he meets Abraham back on the plain of Sodom. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for thyself. And Abram said unto the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread even unto a shoe latchet, that I w- and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abraham rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Ener, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Okay, so King of Sodom comes down and says, Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Even though I did nothing and, you know, I caused all this, this trouble in the first place. Thank you so much. You, you know what? You keep, keep all, the mo- all the money, all the gold, all the resources that you, that you rescued back. Just give me the people back. That's all I need. And Abraham says, um, says, oh, no, I want you to take it all back. And he says a very interesting thing that I think is a good thing to think about throughout your life 
as you go about and you do things. And this isn't to say never to accept gifts or never to accept help or anything, but it is to say, think about who is offering you help. Because Abraham says, I don't want anyone to ever say that, you, that all my blessings came from you. Because Sodom represents everything that is against God. They represent utter rebellion. And Abraham says, I don't want that in my reputation. I want only God to have been said to have blessed me. And that is what Abraham's reputation is, that there, no one has ever, he's not who he is because of the family he was born into or because of the city he came from or anything like that. Because he's a total, he abandoned all of that and he's, his only inheritance is God and what God gives him. So that's a good thing, a little lesson, a thing to think about. He says, I don't even want a thread from a garment or a eyelet on a shoe to be from you. So now, now we're going to go back. Oh, he, but what he does say, this is important too, is that he pays all the men who helped him before he gives the goods back. He makes sure that he is taking care of all those who have aligned themselves with him, who have helped him, that have called him their friend. And then he also gives a tenth of all of this stuff as a tithe to somebody else. Do you want to guess who he gives it to? Nope. That's a good guess, though, because every, literally, well, I don't want to say literally, but as a rule, every other time in the Bible... That would be the right answer. <laughs> so let's go back to verse 18 through 20. Okay, because this is, this is a famous passage that is used quite a few times in the Bible. And um, I believe you guys are looking at pictures of Jesus throughout the Old Testament in Sunday school. Okay, so this is one of those those pictures here that we're going to see that just happened to be uh, part of our Abraham story. Okay, verses 18, 18 through 20 of chapter 14 in Genesis. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, that is Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the most high God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand and given him the tithes of, and he gave him the tithes of all. Okay. So who is this guy, Melchizedek? Okay. He is a priest. Um, but to me, always, whenever I read this, the thing that strikes me first is, wait a minute. Who is this guy who is a priest of God? Like, and it doesn't say just God, little g. It says big G, and it says God, the most high God, and the possessor of earth and heaven. So then there's no confusion. This is like the Christian God. Uh, not yet Christian, but 
It is the God who created the earth. So that's like really striking, first of all, because what did we say at the beginning of the series? That there is no one else who follows God. Yeah, there's no, Abram's the only one. That's why it was getting towards the end. The flame was starting to flicker and God said, I'm going to choose Abraham to be a father of all those who follow me. So who's this guy who isn't related to Abraham? He's like from out of nowhere comes and he's following God. Not only that, he's a priest of God. Abraham's not even a priest. And not only that, but he is king of Salem. So where is Salem? This is, this is uh, once you hear it, you'll be like, oh. So, it is, yep. So, Salem, Jerusalem, okay. Salem is the same place as Jerusalem. It may have been the general area around Jerusalem, or it may have been the original name of the city or the mountain that Jerusalem is on, okay. So, he's king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek is. And Salem means peace. And then Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Now, do you know, what do you know about Hebrew priests? Yep. Not all of them do, but yes. Okay, yes, they get the closest to, like, they get the most intense form of God's presence on the earth. Um, But only, not all of them do. It's only the high priest, which is selected. They're not, he's not high priest forever. They get picked. And anyways, they're the only one who gets to. Um, So what do you know about Hebrew kings? Yeah, because they are people, right? Okay. So, let me ask you this, though. Can you be a king and a priest? That kind of reminds me of the Pope, right? Well, like, I remember in history class, there's like, where the kings were trying to get power, the Pope had the power. Yes, that's true. But just specifically Hebrews and for the Jews. I feel like that's a conflict of interest. It is. And that is something that never, ever happened. There was never somebody who was king and the, and the priests because the priests, the, the Levites were told they were not allowed to own any physical possessions. Naturally, if you're king, you own all the physical possessions. Yeah. Okay, so that, that's one, like, just a legal thing that doesn't work. Not only that, that God never set it up to be that way. He didn't even want kings in the beginning. Obviously, it was part of his plan, but he at first said no kings because this is the best way, that I am your king. I'm your only king. 
okay? Because the priests don't have any power over what you do. They're just there to serve you, to be that, um, to be a gateway for you between you and God. Um, so, this, now, I say that, but the answer is really not 100% no. So let's go to Psalms 110. Oh, silly me, I had a bookmark and I'm searching for it. Okay, so this whole, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, I'm going to read some of it. Just because I don't think we have enough time for that. But. This is a great psalm that is, the entire thing is a prophecy. And I think you'll probably be able to figure out who it's about. Well, I'll just, I'll just read the whole thing. It's short. So the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send thy rod of thy strength out of Zion, which that is the mountain Jerusalem is on. Rule thou out Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of, the, of holiness. From the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath shown and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. So, who do you think that psalm is about? Yes, that's a good guess. It is. It is about Jesus. Um... And it's not just a, though, this is not one that was fulfilled during Jesus' time on earth, the first time, the time in the past. This is one that's going to be fulfilled in the future, partially. Some of it is already fulfilled, but the things that he's going to do in that have not happened yet. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. Since now you're starting to see how Melchizedek fits into this picture. And Hebrews is full of Paul talking about Melchizedek. He talks about him a lot in this, but most of it happens here in chapter 7. <clears throat> and I'm just going to pick out some things out of it because um, it's a long chapter and it's it would take one night just to study it. But let's look at uh, the first verse. We'll start there of chapter 7 of Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So clearly, talking about the same Melchizedek, there's only one in the Bible, only one in history. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descendant, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Okay, so now this is not saying Melchizedek was, had no parents or that he didn't die. He obviously did. He's a human. But it means in the pages of history, in that time, all of a sudden, after this battle, Melchizedek shows up and on Abraham's way back and blesses him and like brings him bread and wine and food and offers and does an offering unto God and blesses him. And then he leaves and no one hears from him again. It's like, I'm going to use another Disney thing because, because we've just been watching a lot of Disney movies. So, you know, everyone knows Lion King, right? Like Rafiki, right? He's the wise, he's kind of crazy, but he's, he's the wise monkey. Yes, that holds Simba up at the beginning. But he comes out of nowhere and then he disappears, right? Nobody knows anything about him. You're like, who is this guy? There are no other monkeys like him. He just, you don't even see another monkey that looks like him. He just shows up, he does his thing, does his important, like, serves that kind of role, and then all of a sudden he's gone. Never hear from him again. And that's what Melchizedek is like. He bursts forth on the pages of history, does this super important thing as a picture, as an image of something, and then leaves. And that's it. Never see him again. Okay? So, Melchizedek, if you didn't figure it out, he is a picture of Jesus. So, why that's important is because Jesus is both king and he is our eternal high priest. He is finally the perfect high priest that, um, that completed the perfect sacrifice. He was both the sacrificed and the priest that sacrificed the sacrifice. He is, and he is also the king at the same time. And he brings peace, just like Melchizedek is, um, brings peace and is the king of peace, shows up after the battle is won. He is the king of Jerusalem, just like Jesus is going to be the king of the new Jerusalem when he brings it down. He is also king and priest and brings uh, righteousness and forgiveness. Remember, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, but he is bringing, um, just like the priest brings forgiveness, because he brings that sacrifice that for atonement, the king also brings righteousness, because that's what kings do. They judge. They they are the law of the land, and Jesus also brings that perfect righteousness. So, um, and just like Melchizedek, no one knows where he comes from or where he went, Jesus has no beginning or end. He always was and always will be. He is forever. And then the last thing that I found interesting is that Melchizedek brings bread and he brings wine just like Jesus at the Last Supper had bread and wine with him. And then it also is representative that the bread of life, that Melchizedek is bringing this bread of, uh, symbolically, bringing bread of life, just like Jesus brings us our daily bread when we need it. Right after Abraham has been through a hard battle, 
has done something difficult, he is, bring, he is fed and he has brought a meal. And the wine also represents what? Especially when you're talking about Jesus. Right, the blood that was shed for us is bringing the salvation. If you want to go one more thing on it, what is Jesus going to throw for us um, after we are resurrected? A feast. a feast, right? And Melchizedek is bringing a feast here to Abraham. So this is, this is just a picture where God sent this and... The only clue that he gives is um, approximately 600 years later, David writes a psalm that mentions Melchizedek. And then you don't hear, no one makes the connection and lays it out from what I, from what anyone can tell is until Paul, until after his death, where it's like, where he says, this is what it was. This is what the picture was of what Jesus is. So it is, um, it is a famous picture of Jesus. It is one that gives you an idea of wrapping up all the parts of like the Jewish um, structure to their government together because Jesus is going to bring that perfect government when his reigns for a millennia remember guys millennia he's gonna reign for a thousand years all right just to reinforce it a little more that jesus is going to show us how to do things right on the earth we're seeing a whole lot of how not to do it right right now all over the place we've been seeing that for the entire length of time there's very few times where things are done right. But Jesus is going to show us what that right looks like. And it's something that I wonder about often where it's like, what even is that going to be like? Like, obviously, how to live your life, how to be cohesive as a group and work towards things, work together as a nation, as an earth. He's going to show us how to... I don't know, do proper crop rotation, whatever. He's going to show us every little detail of the right way to, to manage the earth, to run government, how to make sure everything is fair and good and peaceable. So just another picture of Jesus and um, more about Abraham and the man that he is, the character that he has, and the faith that he has in God. And we'll pick up some more next week. Thank you.